Chapter Nineteen of the Lamplighter. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Bridget Gage. The Lamplighter by Maria Susanna Cummins. Chapter Nineteen. More health, dear maid, thy soothing presence brings, than purest skies or salutary springs. Mrs. Berald. Persons who own residences within six miles of a large city cannot be properly said to enjoy country life. They have large gardens, oftentimes extensive grounds, and raise their own fruit and vegetables. They usually keep horses, drive about, and take the air. Some maintain quite a barnyard establishment, and pride themselves upon their fat cattle and Shanghai fowls. But after all, these suburban residents do not taste the charms of true country life. There are no pathless woods, no roaring brooks, no waving fields of grain, no wide stretches of pasture land. Every eminence commands a view of the near metropolis, the hum of which is almost audible, and every hourly omnibus or train of cars carries oneself or one's neighbor to or from the busy mart. Those who seek retirement and seclusion, however, can nowhere be more sure to find it than in one of these half country, half city homes, and many a family will, summer after summer, resort to the same quiet corner. And undisturbed by visitors or gossip, maintain an independence of life which would be quite impossible either in the crowded streets of the town, where one's acquaintances are forever dropping in, or in the strictly country villages where every newcomer is observed, called upon, and talked about. Mr. Graham's establishment was of the medium order, and little calculated to attract notice. The garden was certainly very beautiful. Abounding in rich shrubbery, summer houses, and arbors covered with grapevines, but a high board fence hid it from public view, and the house, standing back from the road, was rather old-fashioned and very unobtrusive in its appearance. Excepting his horticultural propensities, Mr. Graham's associations were all connected with the city, and Emily, being unfitted for much general intercourse with society, entertained little company. Save that of the neighbors who made formal calls, and some particular friends, such as Mr. Arnold, the clergyman, and a few intimates, who often towards evening drove out of town to see Emily and eat fruit. The summer was passing away most happily, and Gertrude, in the constant enjoyment of Emily's society, and in the consciousness that she was, in various ways, rendering herself useful and important to this excellent friend. Was finding in every day new causes of contentment and rejoicing, when a seal was suddenly set to all her pleasure. Emily was taken ill with a fever, and Gertrude, on occasion of her first undertaking to enter the sick room, and share in its duties, was rudely repulsed by Mrs. Ellis, who had constituted herself sole nurse, and who declared, when the poor girl pleaded hard to be admitted, that the fever was catching, and Miss Emily did not want her there. That when she was sick, she never wanted any one about her but herself. For three or four days, Gertrude wandered about the house, inconsolable. On the fifth morning after her banishment from the room, she saw Mrs. Prime, the cook, going upstairs with some gruel, and thrusting into her hand some beautiful rosebuds, which she had just gathered. She begged her to give them to Emily, and ask if she might not come in and see her. She lingered about the kitchen, awaiting Mrs. Prime's return. In hopes of some message, at least from the sufferer, but when the cook came down, the flowers were still in her hand, and as she threw them on the table, the kind-hearted woman gave vent to her feelings. 
"'Well, folks do say that first-rate cooks and nurses are allers as cross as bears. "'Tain't for me to say whether it's so about cooks, but about nurses there ain't no sort of doubt. "'I would not want to go there, Miss Gertrude. "'I wouldn't ensure you but what she'd bite your head off.' "'Wouldn't Miss Emily take the flowers?' asked Gertrude, looking quite grieved. "'Well, she hadn't no word in the matter. "'You know she couldn't see what they were, and Miss Ellis flung em outside the door.' "'Vowin' I might as well bring poison into the room with a fever as them roses. "'I tried to speak to Miss Emily, but Miss Ellis set up such a hush. "'I supposed she was going to sleep, and just made the best of my way out. "'Ugh! Don't she scold when there's anybody sick!' "'Gertrude sauntered out into the garden. "'She had nothing to do but think anxiously about Emily, "'who she feared was very ill. "'Her work and her books were all in Emily's room, where they were usually kept.' The library might have furnished amusement, but it was locked up. So the garden was the only thing left for her, and there she spent the rest of the morning. And not that morning only, but many others, for Emily continued to grow worse, and a fortnight passed away without Gertrude seeing her, or having any other intimation regarding her health than Mrs. Ellis's occasional report to Mr. Graham, who, however, as he saw the physician every day, and made frequent visits to his daughter himself, did not require that particular information which Gertrude was eager to obtain. Once or twice she had ventured to question Mrs. Ellis, whose only reply was, "'Don't bother me with questions. What do you know about sickness?' One afternoon Gertrude was sitting in a large summer-house at the lower end of the garden. Her own piece of ground, fragrant with mignonette and verbena, was close by, and she was busily engaged in tying up and marking some little papers of seeds, the gleanings from various seed-vessels, when she was startled by hearing a step close beside her, and, looking up, saw Dr. Jeremy, the family physician, just entering the building. "'Ah, what are you doing?' exclaimed the doctor, in a quick, abrupt manner, peculiar to him. "'Sorting seeds, eh?' "'Yes, sir,' replied Gertie, looking up and blushing, as she saw the doctor's keen black eyes scrutinizing her face. "'Where have I seen you before?' "'asked he, in the same blunt way. "'At Mr. Flint's. "'Ah, true Flint's. "'I remember all about it. "'You're his girl. "'Nice girl, too. "'And poor true he's dead. "'Well, he's a loss to the community. "'So this is the little nurse I used to see there. "'Bless me, how children do grow.' "'Dr. Jeremy,' asked Gertrude, in an earnest voice, "'will you please to tell me how Miss Emily is?' "'Emily, she ain't very well just now.' "'Do you think she'll die?' "'Die? No! What should she die for? "'I won't let her die, if you'll help me keep her alive. "'Why ain't you in the house taking care of her?' "'I wish I might!' exclaimed Gertrude, starting up. "'I wish I might!' "'What's to hinder?' "'Mrs. Ellis, sir. She won't let me in. "'She says Miss Emily doesn't want anybody but her.' "'She's nothing to say about it, or Emily either. "'It's my business, and I want you.' I'd rather have you to take care of my patients than all the Mrs. Ellis's in the world. She doesn't know anything about nursing. Let her stick to her cranberry sauce and squash pies. So mind, tomorrow you're to begin. Oh, thank you, doctor. Don't thank me yet. Wait till you've tried it. It's hard work taking care of sick folks. Whose orchard is that? Mrs. Bruce's. Is that her pear tree? Yes, sir. By George, Mrs. Bruce, I'll try your pears for you. As he spoke, the doctor, a man some sixty-five years of age, stout and active, sprung over a stone wall, which separated them from the orchard, 
and carried along by the impetus the leap had given him, reached the foot of the tree almost at a bound. As Gertrude, full of mirth, watched the proceeding, she observed the doctor stumble over some obstacle, and only save himself from falling by stretching forth both hands, and sustaining himself against the huge trunk of the fine old tree. At the same instant, a head, adorned with a velvet smoking-cap, was slowly lifted from the long grass, and a youth, about sixteen or seventeen years of age, raised himself upon his elbow, and stared at the unlooked-for intruder. Nothing daunted, the doctor at once took offensive ground towards the occupant of the place, saying, "'Get up, lazy bones! What do you lie there for, tripping up honest folks?' "'Who do you call honest folks, sir?' inquired the youth, apparently quite undisturbed by the doctor's epithet and inquiry. "'I call myself and my little friend here remarkably honest people,' replied the doctor, winking at Gertrude, who, standing behind the wall and looking over, was laughing heartily at the way in which the doctor had got caught. The young man, observing the direction of the latter's eyes, turned and gave a broad stare at Gertrude's merry face. "'Can I do anything for you, sir?' asked he. "'Yes, certainly,' replied the doctor. "'I came here to help myself to pears. But you are taller than I. Perhaps, with the help of that crooked-handled cane of yours, you can reach that best branch.' "'A remarkably honorable and honest errand,' muttered the young man. "'I shall be happy to be engaged in so good a cause.' As he spoke, he lifted his cane, which lay by his side, and, drawing down the end of the branch, so that he could reach it with his hand, shook it vigorously. The ripe fruit fell on every side, and the doctor, having filled his pockets, and both his hands, started for the other side of the wall. "'Have you got enough?' asked the youth, in a very lazy tone of voice. "'Plenty, plenty,' said the doctor. "'Glad of it,' said the boy, indolently throwing himself on the grass, and still staring at Gertrude. "'You must be very tired,' said the doctor, stepping back a pace or two. "'I'm a physician, and should advise a nap.' "'Are you indeed?' replied the youth, in the same, half-drawling, half-ironical tone of voice, in which he had previously spoken. "'Then I think I'll take your advice.' saying which, he threw himself back upon the grass and closed his eyes. Having emptied his pockets upon the seat of the summer-house, and invited Gertrude to partake, the doctor, still laughing so immoderately at his boyish feet, that he could scarcely eat the fruit, happened to bethink himself of the lateness of the hour. He looked at his watch. Half-past four. The cars go in ten minutes. Who's going to drive me down to the depot?' "'I don't know, sir.' replied Gertrude, to whom the question seemed to be addressed. "'Where's George?' "'He's gone to the meadow to get in some hay, but he left white Charlie harnessed in the yard. I saw him fasten him to the chain, after he drove you up from the cars.' "'Ah, then you can drive me down to the depot.' "'I can't, sir. I don't know how.' "'But you must. I'll show you how. You're not afraid.' "'Oh, no, sir. But Mr. Graham—' "'Never you mind Mr. Graham. Do you mind me?' I'll answer for your coming back safe enough. Gertrude was naturally courageous. She had never driven before. But having no fears, she succeeded admirably, and being often afterwards called upon by Dr. Jeremy to perform the same service, she soon became skillful in the use of the reins, an accomplishment not always particularly desirable in a lady, but which, in her case, proved very useful. Dr. Jeremy was true to his promise of installing Gertrude in Emily's sick-room, the very next visit he made to his patient, 
He spoke in terms of the highest praise of Gertrude's devotion to her old uncle, and her capability as a nurse, and asked why she had been expelled from the chamber. "'She is timid,' said Emily, "'and is afraid of catching the fever.' "'Don't believe it,' said Jeremy. "'Tain't like her.' "'Do you think not?' inquired Emily, earnestly. "'Mrs. Ellis—' "'Told a lie,' interrupted the doctor. "'Gertie wants to come and take care of you, "'and she knows how as well as Mrs. Ellis, any day. "'It isn't much you need done. "'You want quiet, and that's what you can't have, "'with that great talking woman about. "'So I'll send her to Jericho to-day, "'and bring my little Gertrude up here. "'She's a quiet little mouse, "'and has got a head on her shoulders.' It is not to be supposed that Gertrude could provide for Emily's wants any better, or even as well, as Mrs. Ellis. And Emily, knowing this, took care that the housekeeper should not be sent to Jericho, for though Dr. Jeremy, a man of strong prejudices, did not like her, she was excellent in her department, and could not be dispensed with. Had it been otherwise, Emily would not have hurt her feelings by letting her see that she was in any degree superseded. So, though Emily, Dr. Jeremy, and Gertrude were all made happy by the free admission of the latter to the sick-room, the housekeeper, unhandsomely as she had behaved, was never conscious that any one knew the wrong she had done to Gertrude, in keeping her out of sight, and giving a false reason for her continued absence. There was a watchfulness, a care, a tenderness in Gertrude, which only the warmest love could have dictated. When Emily awoke at night from a troubled sleep, found a quilling draught ready at her lips, and knew from Mrs. Ellis's deep snoring that it was not her hand that held it. When she observed that all day long no troublesome fly was ever permitted to approach her pillow, her aching head was relieved by hours of patient bathing, and the little feet that were never weary were always noiseless. She realized the truth, that Dr. Jeremy had brought her a most excellent medicine. A week or two passed away, and she was well enough to sit up nearly all the time, though not yet able to leave her room. A few weeks more, and the doctor began to insist upon air and exercise. "'Drive out two or three times every day,' said he. "'How can I?' said Emily. "'George has so much to do. It will be very inconvenient.' "'Let Gertrude drive you. She is a capital hand.' "'Gertrude,' said Emily, smiling, "'I believe you are a great favorite of the doctor's. He thinks you can do every... "'He thinks you can do anything.' "'You never drove in your life, did you?' "'Hasn't she driven me to the depot every day for these six weeks?' inquired the doctor. "'Is it possible?' asked Emily, who was unaccustomed to the idea of a lady's attempting the management of a horse. Upon her being assured that this was the case, and the doctor insisting that there was no danger, Charlie was harnessed into the carryall, and Emily and Mrs. Ellis went out to drive with Gertrude an experiment which, being often repeated, was a source of health to the invalid and a pleasure to them all. In the early autumn, when Emily's health was quite restored, old Charlie was daily called into requisition. Sometimes Mrs. Ellis accompanied them, but as she was often engaged about household duties, they usually went by themselves, in a large old-fashioned buggy, and Emily declared that Gertrude's learning to drive had proved one of the greatest sources of happiness she had known for years. Once or twice, in the course of the summer and autumn, Gertrude saw again the lazy youth whom Dr. Jeremy had stumbled over when he went to steal pears. Once he came and sat on the wall while she was at work in her garden, professed himself astonished at her activity, talked a little with her about the flowers, 
asked some questions concerning her friend Dr. Jeremy, and ended by requesting to know her name. Gertrude blushed. She was a little sensitive about her name, and though she always went by that of Flint, and did not, on ordinary occasions, think much about it, she could not fail to remember, when the question was put to her point-blank, that she had, in reality, no surname of her own. Emily had endeavored to find Nan Grant, in order to learn from her something of Gertrude's early history, but Nan had left her old habitation, and for years nothing had been heard of her. Gertrude, as we have said, blushed on being asked her name, but replied with dignity that she would tell hers, provided her new acquaintance would return the compliment. "'Shan't do it,' said the youth, impudently, "'and don't care about knowing yours either.' Saying which, he kicked an apple with his foot and walked off, still kicking it before him, leaving Gertrude to the conclusion that he was the most ill-bred person she had ever seen. End of chapter 19